Hi, I'm Alan Altman. I'm Dave Juskow. And this is Billy Joel A to Z. And welcome to Billy Joel A to Z, where our alphabetical journey takes us on a two month plus schedule talking about Billy Joel songs that begin with the letter S. And today, that S song is an absolute classic in Say Goodbye to Hollywood, the clear tribute to Ronnie Spector and the Ronette song, Be My Baby. Say Goodbye to Hollywood kicks off Billy Joel's incredible fourth studio album, Bomb, Turnstiles. <laughs> now, there are sources that would tell you it was released as a single in 1976 or as a B-side to I've Loved These Days, but that is not the case. There are 45s of I've Loved These Days around on eBay and such, but they were only promotional copies from Columbia. and have I've Loved These Days on both sides. So, as we know, Turnstiles was such a dud amongst those who didn't know any better, Billy chose to record the song live and give it another shot five years later on Songs in the Attic. In Songs in the Attic, Say Goodbye to Hollywood kicks off the second side of the album in a live performance captured on July 14th of 1980 at the Milwaukee Arena in beautiful downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So in March of 1981, the live version of Say Goodbye to Hollywood was finally released as a single. And on November 7th of 1981, it peaked on the charts at 17. That is one long, slow burn. (laughs) The live Songs in the Attic version of Say Goodbye to Hollywood appears on Greatest Hits Volume 1. Although in 1998, the digital remaster CD subsequently changes it to the turnstile studio version for god knows what reason so i don't whatever version you get of greatest hits volume one and two especially volume one i i at this point i don't know what version of say goodbye hollywood you're going to get what what, yeah and i wonder you know who are these people that are like you know what we should do I mean, it's just so ridiculous i you know they do this all the time remember that they change on volume one and two um I believe between didn't we talk about whether it's between don't ask me why and and honesty, I believe. Right. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And then also they obviously they took out the sax solo at one point in time. I mean, another what, song. Why are they messing with it? How do you mess with the greatest hits? It is what it is. It's like that stupid my life thing where they just put on the actual studio album that you can get anywhere. Of course, with this album, Turnstiles, at least the greats realized Billy's unbelievable songwriting, as we know. Barbara Streisand covered New York State of Mind a year after the release of Turnstiles, which is amazing and a miracle. And Bette Midler covered Say Goodbye to Hollywood in 1977, as well as the highest of high honors, Ronnie Spector herself 
covering the song written with her in mind also in 1977 with the help of, for some reason, the E Street Band. <laughs> Ironically, the covering of Say Goodbye to Hollywood by Ronnie Spector and the E Street Band and releasing it as a single financially helped Bruce Springsteen, who was having Billy Joel-like legal problems of his own. And that way, for them releasing the band and Ronnie releasing that single financially, it helped them stay together as a band and then let them record Darkness to the Edge of Town and beyond. So thanks to Billy Joel, there is a Bruce Springsteen in the East Street Band. Wow. You're, you're welcome, America. So now you know how important this song is to Billy and many others over the years. And yet it's mostly not part of Billy's shows anymore, as it's difficult for him to sing the vocals at this point in his life. But we'll get into that when Alan gives us more of the live stats. For now, we have to begin our venture into the S's by seeing what our boys rank this song as. Christopher Bonanos in his New York Magazine article, Alan. Where does a Christopher Bonanos type put uh, a, a, an absolute uh, classic like Say Goodbye to Hollywood out of 121 songs? I think he likes it. I don't think he likes it as much as I do because I like this song a lot. I'm going to just say 24. Interesting. Uh, I'm only saying interesting because he puts it at 14, but Glenn Gamboa put it at 24. Oh, I was doing the Glenn. You know me. I get confused sometimes. I did <laughs> hit it on the rankings. number. Christopher Bonanos puts it at 14, has it higher than Glenn Gamboa, and that is sandwiched in between Piano Man and Moving Out. So that's pretty cool. However, here's the weird part. His blurb says, poorly recorded. <laughs> the 14th song is poorly recorded. The bass overwhelms it, and the studio cut sounds weak and wan. But underneath all that, there's a well-wrought pop song in hiding. He really hated L.A. Much better in live later recordings where the piano sounds cleaner, the violins are gone, and he sings it better. The uh, fans rank it at 35. I'm surprised the fans didn't like it as much. For me, this well, is top 10. Is that right? Yeah, I think it is. You know, I guess I feel like the fans do. I'm not a, it's not my favorite song. I understand its greatness, but yeah, it's not my favorite song. I like it a lot. It's interesting, but yeah, I never liked the Ronettes, so that doesn't matter. But I do enjoy the fact that once again, I mean, this could have completely been on an innocent man, right? Yeah, totally. In fact, this is probably his first song that he did in that kind of style, because he had a few other ones later that we also say could have also fit on an innocent man. Yeah, good point. But here we are again, Billy Joel saying, I want to make a song that sounds like this genre I like this group and he writes his own song he does not cover be my baby which he be be my baby right sometimes i think it's be my little baby he does not cover it he writes his own song and and it's so good the, the song the person he wrote it for covers it herself i mean that's i mean in, in all of an innocent man i don't think any of the people he they might have been dead but i don't think any of the people he wrote them in the style of covered their own songs no, I do not think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a huge honor to have to have Ronnie Spector sing the song and to hear it kind of in her voice because you almost picture it sometimes in her voice when he's I, you, singing, you say do. goodbye, my baby, sounds like her saying, be my baby. Yes, and uh, Alon, did you get to see her 
singing it at the top of the pops in 1977. She is so cute. There's just no other word for it. Did you see that? Yeah. She looks like a cute. She kind of looks like Sammy Davis Jr. The way she's doing her dance moves. They're like, yeah, they yeah. reminded me of some kind of rat pack kind of thing. Oh, that's funny. But she's so cute. She's just wearing jeans and she's got this great smile and her hair is really great. And she looks so young and just cute. You know, it's not like sexy. It's just cute as a button. And her singing this song. It's, it, it's, it looks ridiculous. Does her singing it like without a band? And it's clearly being lip synced, I guess, because I think it fades out. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she was really talented. She could fade out her voice live. <laughs> Johnny's driving through the city tonight, through the lights in a hot new rental car. He joins the lovers in this heavy machine. It's a scene a down on Sunset Boulevard. Actually, I'm pretty sure she was dating. Uh, who's the guy from The Sopranos at the time that's in the E Street Band? Steve Van Zant. Yeah, I believe they were dating, which is how this all, I think, came together. Or it came together and then they started dating. I don't know. But yeah, to cover a song the same year it came out, just like Streisand did with New York State of Mind. I mean, that's just what higher honors. I believe we were talking about Shameless with Billy Ray Cyrus. The, no, not Billy Ray. Uh, Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks. Yeah, because of the empty nest thing. That's right. But he, I think he covered that in 91. That was like two, three, two or three, two years after Stormfront. So, I mean, this is the same year the thing comes out and it's so huge to, to people in the know, like the musicians. Look at all these musicians that realized Turnstiles was a piece of art. As fans of Billy Joel, we knew, but, you know, the rest of the world just didn't get it. But the musicians, clearly, we're talking about Streisand, Bette Midler, and the E Street Band covering songs off this album the, the the year it came out. Yeah, it's incredible. And it really was like at this point in time, Billy was probably thinking, maybe I'm just more of a songwriter. Like, I'll put out my albums and then bigger artists will cover me because he was having no success as, a, as himself. And then luckily it changed for him with The Stranger. Would you mind if you if we just kind of skip to where you tell us the live stats? I'm curious. And I'm only asking because it, in 2015, he was at MSG and it sounds OK. And then he kind of loses it by the time the bridge comes in. And I was just wondering if that is a true statistic where he is. Where he has trouble singing the song. Yeah, the live stats are kind of shocking, actually, because I always considered this to be like one of his standards. You would I would have thought that, too. Yeah. Throughout his career, this has always been in his show. This song is the 46th most played song. He's played it 80 times. but. And, and just to put that in perspective, he's played Highway to Hell more than this song. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, that's so amazing. In recent years, since 2014, it's been pretty regular, actually, in his set. So all the way through now, he just played it in February. So when one of his most recent shows, he played it. It's not every single show, but it's out there a lot. But between 1982 and 2014, he played it zero times. Wow. Zero. Never. This is a big, for us, a big hit. It was on his greatest hits, volume one. It wasn't one of those volume three songs. Right. And let alone, you know, it clearly works live because he put it out legally as a 
live song on songs in the attic, you know, and, and again, kicked off the second side. Remember it kicks off turnstiles and then it kicks off the second side of, you know, the next album he has it on. So he clearly likes to, he thinks this song rocks. I, I'm surprised unless it really does come down to the vocals. Whereas we know his arranger, David uh, uh, Rosenthal has over the years transposed his stuff. So it's at a different key for him to sing it. Yeah, but you're right. Like, this is a great live song. It's got great energy. That first drum beat, which is the thing that really most clearly comes from Be My Baby, is oh, so yeah, exciting. Right? It's amazing. We actually, so there's audio of the very first time he played this song, which was May 19th, 1976 at the Sydney Opera House in Australia. Oh. And so that's the day that Turnstiles was released. Okay, so no one knows this song at this point. But the wow. second that first drum hits, the crowd starts cheering like crazy. Because they recognize it in their mind because they're thinking of Be My Baby. Like right away, you're like, this is familiar oh. to me. And then uh, and he actually played it as the final song before the encore on that show. So he put it in, a, in an important part in the live show, even from right, right from the get go. But then at some point in 1982, he just stopped playing it. So maybe it's the vocals. Yeah, I mean, that's what they say. You know, it's funny about this song, Be My Baby, too. We're talking about the original song that he clearly wrote. And this is, you know, one of those songs where it's clearly this song. Like, that's why maybe it wouldn't fit on Innocent Man because an Innocent Man, he might have been writing it like it, but I don't recognize what he's talking about with the songs. You know, they don't, they sound new. This clearly just sounds like that song, like Be My Baby. But the amazing thing about Be My Baby is it's everybody's so obsessed with it. And remember, Eddie Money had the hugest hit he ever had in his life with Take Me Home Tonight, yeah. which was not only clearly about and uses a lot of Be My Baby, but it has Ronnie Spector singing on it. were so obsessed with her and i'm not exactly sure why it's not like we saw the clip of her singing this song and she's cute as a button but i'm not sure if she had a great singing voice or anything it wasn't like spectacular it had a certain tone to it that was unique and it's like billy says like he used her kind of vibrato when he's singing this song and something about the way she sings separated her from others so there was like that sound that people wanted to hear I guess it's very much like Stevie Nicks, you know, like she, I mean, do we, is that a great singing voice? It's just interesting and different. And yeah. Or even hear it every day. Or like Cindy Lauper also has like a unique quality to her voice. Oh, that's good. Well, Cindy Lauper is uh, right. She does have a unique quality, but she's good at being to also disguise it and use it, which, uh, which I don't think uh, Ronnie Spector could do. Like, again, I know we've talked about this when we did code of silence, but you know, when she does true colors and she's able to use her squeakiness and put it in a different form. I mean, that's really knowing your vocalness and your vocal prowess. And I don't think Ronnie Spector, you know, Ronnie Spector is this is what I do. And here it is, just like Stevie Nicks. But yeah, it is the Karen Carpenter, a great example of somebody with a very different kind of voice that you don't even know whether it's like, wait, is this good or is it just 
different and interesting and I enjoy it every time I hear it. Yeah. Speaking of, is this good or is it just something that I enjoy? I feel like that way about Be My Baby. I was listening to the original and yeah, we all love the chorus of it. And I think the first minute's fine, but it gets, for a two and a half minute song, it's very repetitive. It doesn't really have a lot to it. It gets boring really fast. They must say the chorus like 40 times in the song. So <laughs> if you're going to compare that to Say Goodbye to Hollywood, I think Billy, yeah, he it was inspired by it in many ways, but he clearly made a better song. Oh, yeah. No, he yeah, he made a better song. He made a better song. Yeah, that's Be My Baby. I never, I never, once I was hearing the song, I never wanted to hear the original. Like, it didn't make me be like, now I want to hear the original, which it should do, but it doesn't because you're right. You're completely correct on everything you're saying. Also, my favorite part about this song is the bridge. I think that's what you would call it. Mm -hmm. You know, where it's like moving on is a chance you take every time, you know, that part. I mean, that is so good. That's so much fun. And it brings you to a place where you're like, oh, my God, I love this song so much. And it reminds me of what we always talk about, which is the uh, Beatles one. You won't see me where the bridge is the best part of the song. Time after time, you refuse to even listen. Remember, we were talking about that. And then they repeat the bridge, which is rare. And he does that here, too, because he knows, oh, my God, this part sounds so cool. Yeah, that and then mixed with the verse that comes after it, which is, I think, some of his best lyrics. So many faces in and out of my life. Some will last. Some will just be now and then. Life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. I'm afraid it's time for goodbye again. It's just, it's really nicely poetic. And uh, I love this song, man. It makes me feel good. Even though it's kind of wistful, it's sad. I'm leaving Hollywood, but it rolls forward. Like you're saying, that bridge section has a lot of good energy to it. He brings it back a second time. Man, it's a good song. There's a performance at Nassau Coliseum in 1977 where his voice is spectacular. He sings it just the right way. But the best part is at the uh, three minute, 15 second mark. Uh, there's a tribute to running on ice. <laughs> Are you gonna play this? Are you gonna play this for us? I will, of course, play it. Uh, but it's just it's stupid. I just heard it and I'm like, oh my god, he's doing running on ice. <laughs> like, oh, it's a precursor. <laughs> There's a good version of the live in Carnegie Hall, which was released, I think, on the the Stranger Deluxe Edition. The second CD is this live concert from June 77, which is before The Stranger came out. Um, But he plays this song. And what's cool about it is you get the energy of a live version. But if you like the strings on the studio version, this one has strings as well, because it was at Carnegie Hall. So he had some like an orchestra there with him as well. So you kind of get the best of best of both worlds. You get the string arrangement. And you get the the way he plays it live, which is always better. But what's cool about it is he changes the name Johnny to Ronnie in this version. He said, Ronnie's taking care of things for a while, and her style is so right for troubadours. So for Ronnie Spector, he says Ronnie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I wonder why he just changed it there. Probably other versions as well where he's done that. That's the one that I noticed. Also, in the live versions, he tends to do more of the Be My Baby thing where he'll throw in more, uh, 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 like during the uh, during the instrumental break, which is cool. Yeah, you just got me thinking, and this is stupid, but I like what you were saying about Carnegie Hall, and he's using the strings because he has respect for playing Carnegie Hall. And for some reason, it reminded me again of uh, Marvin Hamlish <laughs> when we were talking about Root Beer Rag and the, the strange uh, feud that is 
not even a it's only a feud in my mind between Marvin Hamlet <laughs> and Billy Joel. I was actually talking to Sarah Silverman about it. She's like, wow, that's interesting. You know, like the, the little, you know, competition that they yeah, had. In, you're in creating Just this lore only. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when he when Groucho played Carnegie Hall, Marvin Hamlish was his piano player. And he always said, well, it's Carnegie Hall. We have to open with something big. Like, so he also had the respect for being at Carnegie Hall. And there's this big opening for Groucho because of they're playing Carnegie Hall, which, again, Marvin Hamlish and Billy Joel have the respect. Like, if we're playing this place, we must do these certain things. So. I like that about both of them, that they they get it, you know, and we we always say that it's like, you know, have the respect for playing the comedy seller, you know, which you do. It's the same thing mm-hmm. in, in a different form. But, you know, there is something to I hope you get <clears throat> even when we had Gary Goldman on and he was per- performing at Carnegie Hall. Uh, you know, I, I think he had the respect that this was a big deal. And I, I just hope people do because it's, you know, it's pretty cool to be. And it's weird that Billy Joel, I know, has as much as he is, never seemed to play it again. It seems like it's only that 77 performance. And I know he was much bigger than Carnegie Hall could hold. But you would think after a while he would just want to play there again because it's Carnegie Hall. Yeah, right. Like guys like him would play these smaller venues once in a while to like because of how important they are. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he did play it again later. I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah, in 77, I've, he played like two or three nights in a row there. Yeah. I mean, I've only seen the 77 stuff. Meanwhile, you know, he, he's playing this live and putting it on an album from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So who the hell knows what's happening over there? <laughs> yeah. He had mentioned in an interview that I think in Milwaukee, Turnstiles was actually kind of popular in that area. He had good fans oh, there. That's so it was kind of like his whole like Allentown thing where like certain parts of Pennsylvania like him. Uh, same thing, I guess, in Milwaukee. So he thought he could get a good version of this over there which he did but then the video from um the video that was made for the songs in the attic performance that was released officially was from sparks so it wasn't the actual performance that's on the audio album yeah isn't that odd well they probably did better for video they probably didn't video record the milwaukee one they didn't do that back then so you know they knew they were doing this the sparks is the only one they have for all those videos and stuff but yeah it's not even a true music video which technically when he released songs in the attic he probably should have made a music video because although it's a remake of a song i don't know because that was music video was starting out right one although he did make an official music video for this back in 76 so this and james there was a professionally recorded music video made for both of these songs which is just him and the band playing and it's fine I know, but I'm telling you, I think he got that from the Beatles. I think he got it from McCartney. I think that's where that came from. The fact that he was technically a, a video pioneer. A lot of, you know, there are no other artists who were doing that kind of stuff back then. I, I think it goes back to just being a huge Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. I uh, saw a video of Bon Jovi doing this cover. And it was great because, you know, this song is so good you don't think about it. And I, maybe I didn't even know until I was thinking about it, that it's kind of told through the eyes through of two characters, right? Right. You don't think of this as a character song, but it is, it is right. You don't think of it that way, but it's Bobby and Johnny, right? Yeah. So I never thought about it that way until I saw Bon Jovi do the cover. And uh, like John sings the first part, the first verse, and then Richie sings the second verse. And that's when it occurred to me, it was two different people talking. 
And then it made the song even better. And it was they did it in Los Angeles. Well, that makes sense. It would be cool if he sang it to the tune of Living on a Prayer. Like, well, Bobby's driving through the city tonight. Through well, the lights in a hot new rental car. <laughs> well, that's I what I was it. thinking, because it says, you know, Tommy and Tommy had it, you know, works all night in the docks. I mean, it's just like Johnny and, and Bobby. I mean, any, you know, he probably it, it, I bet you this song was very influential, actually, on Bon Jovi. And that's maybe why they even thought to do it. And of course, they were out in Hollywood and they're Jersey boys, just like Billy Joel. Probably like we're thinking of Billy Joel hating Hollywood. We hate Hollywood, too. Let's do say goodbye to Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. It's cool also that Billy Joel went back to play the small Roxy Theater in Hollywood in, I think, 2012 and sang this song. Well, if he's going to do that, then why not do Carnegie Hall again? What's the matter well, with actually, this Wait, if he did this in 2012, then that means those live stats are wrong. It means he did play it live before 2014. Ha! I found well, the floor. That's all right. We forgive you. Thank you. So the Bette Midler version, I wonder if you would like this version because... I, I feel like you're a Bette Midler fan and her voice sounds really good on it. I'm sorry to, to pigeonhole you as a Bette Midler fan. You're outing me. Yeah. <laughs> but we know you like Barry Manilow and this is like his right hand mm-hmm. gal. That's true. But what I think you would hate about the Bette Midler version is that there's doo-wop in the background. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> you know, I went to see Bette Midler live in concert at the Meadowlands, uh, like Giant Stadium. And uh, it was great. But yeah, it's just not my kind of music. But I didn't hear this version, which is weird, I guess, because I was just didn't care. And I knew it would be something that like that. I guess It was surprising. I was like, what are these deep voiced da- guys doing? It sounds like a, you know, a street corner in Philadelphia. Well, and then there's just... also really heavy string arrangements like the whole thing. If you think the studio version from Turnstiles has some strings on it, wait till you hear the Bette Midler. It is crazy. Well, it's still pretty cool for her to cover it because, you know, uh, two years later, she's going to be a huge, huge star, the Rose. And it's still a big compliment to cover somebody's song when it just came out. I remember, and I don't know whether I mentioned this before, R.E.M. covering one by U2 uh, and like right after it came out, like on a, on a live show wow. and uh, like uh, like a TV performance. And I'm like, damn. That's badass. You know, when they cover it, the like the day after it comes out, it's you have to be impressed by that. And one is that kind of song where you could say, yeah, wow, this is spectacular. And let's not let's call it what it is right now. And that's what I that's what I think happened with this say goodbye to Hollywood and clearly New York state of mind. My, my favorite example of that is right after Sgt. Pepper came out, Jimi Hendrix was playing a live show in London and he just covered it like literally the day it came out. I think he just. Yeah, there you go. When it, when another musician realizes that you have just put out some sort of mastery and then they just can't contain themselves but to cover because it it's in their head, that's the best. That's when you know you've won. Right, because they're just like us. Like when we hear a song we like, we want to sing it. So why, if they, they have the ability to play it, that's what they want to do. They want to do that's the That's what thing. I was doing with Gangnam Style for a long time. 
<laughs> Hello? You were the original, though, right? Sai stole it from you. <laughs> uh, duh. Sai. <laughs> Well, Dave, it's time for the trivia portion of the show. Do you have a stumper for me? Yeah. I got a pretty good one. Billy Joel can say goodbye to Hollywood all he wants, but he said hello to Hollywood forever in 2004 when he was honored with a star on the Walk of Fame. Two-faced. <laughs> Which legendary actress is his star next to who like his mom also had a song written about her eyes. Betty Davis. Boom. Exactly. Since we've already spoken about it before, there it is. Ironically, he's also next to Sammy Davis, which we were talking about Sammy Davis thighs. Uh, (laughs) More interesting eyes. I know. So uh, everything we've been talking about just all makes sense. Also, his star was given to him directly across it's, it's where it is, is directly across from the Pantages Theater in Hollywood, which is where they have all the Broadway shows come to eventually. It was housing moving out when he got the star right across the street from the theater. So that's even better because that Hollywood Walk of Fame doesn't usually give you a star in a, in a place that matters, you know? Yeah, I was thinking when you mentioned like who he was next to, I was like, that's a good spot. That's, right. that's a really prime location. But it was across from the theater where his musical was playing. And that is just ridiculously rare. I think he's also next to your your hero, um, Chief Wiggums. Oh, I'm sorry. Edward G. Robinson. Oh, OK. <laughs> Not even Hank Azaria. <laughs> yeah, Billy Joel. Well, welcome, yeah. to the, welcome to the Pantages block. Yeah, see? <laughs> yeah, where's your messiah now, Flanders? Yeah. So, Alon, do you have a trivia question for me? Yes, I do. So there's a lyric in the song, and his style is so right for troubadours. So my question refers to the Troubadour, which is a legendary nightclub in Los Angeles that launched a million singer-songwriters and famous musicians, but also comedians. Lenny Bruce was arrested there in 1962 for saying the word schmuck on stage, which you can't do. Steve Martin and Cheech and Chong had their big breaks there. So it was a big comedy place as well as music. Uh, The story that I want to talk about is one time in 1974, John Lennon, Ringo Starr, and Harry Nielsen were thrown out of the Troubadour for heckling the Smothers Brothers. (laughs) So my question is, what British actor who was a Rat Pack member and married to JFK's sister was there that night and yelled at John Lennon to shut up? (laughs) What British... Married to JFK. British threw me off. He's in the Rat Pack. Um, he was in Ocean's Eleven. Oh, it's a guy. Yeah. Peter Lawford. Yeah, that's right. Oh, great. <laughs> I thought it was a girl. No, a um, guy married to JFK's sister. Right, right. Peter Lawford. Right. That's my dad's uh, hero in the sense that this guy was a horrible dancer. And back then you had to be in musicals. There's a, mo- a movie called Good News. And we'd been, my dad, remember, he thought it was the funniest thing with my sister. And I still remember that, you know, he's just got this dance thing and he was throwing his hands in the air. And we always make those moves when we're talking about bad dancers. We do the Peter Lawford. It's like, <laughs> is it like the Elaine? It is. Uh, the Elaine is worse. But yes, 
like that. Yeah. He clearly couldn't dance, but everybody was asked to be in a musical back then. And this is why my parents told me I had to sing and dance. That's that's why Atel is always fascinated that I took all this ballet and tap and voice lessons because I was coming from the old school where you needed to do that to make it. Yeah. Whereas all the friends I met besides Sarah, who understood too, uh, in comedy just didn't understand that at all. They just didn't care. They were fascinated by the people that still held to that thing. But nowadays, you know, the, the kids your age growing up, they just wouldn't even think about twice about that. That's necessary because it's not. And it wasn't when I was doing it. I just, that's the way I was brought up. <laughs> but you got to learn to sing it. You know, like, can you tap? Of course I can tap. Right. <laughs> I'll figure it out on stage. Sure I can. Right. And then you cram it in one day. <laughs> so it's funny that you mentioned good news because Lawfer, it says on his Wikipedia, he later admitted that the most terrifying experience of his career was the first musical number he performed in the musical Good News. Oh, see, I never even read that before. <laughs> yeah. My dad pointed that out right away because I told you, you know, me and my sister, my dad, we know bad dancing when we see it. We know bad singing and bad dancing. And we my dad picked that out right away. He knew it way before Wikipedia figured it out, before Peter Lawford said it himself. Well, Alana, I think we are at a place where this is a perfect song for a weird Elon parody. It was actually really hard. Really? Yeah, I don't know what it was. I couldn't, I could not wrap my head around this one. And then finally I got something. Uh, so it is what it is. I think it's good. We'll see. Is, um, all right, can I take a couple of guesses? You'll never get it, but you can try to guess. So it is not Say Goodbye to Dollywood? No, but I considered it for four seconds. Is it Say Goodbye to Bollywood? Consider, <laughs> consider that for two seconds. Say Goodbye to Bollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Canceled. Canceled. Uh, okay, so I had to guess if it was going to be those because I would have enjoyed those. I'm not going to lie to you. Okay, what is it? Okay, this one's for the uh, 90s nostalgia. This one's called Sega Genesis is Good. Sega Genesis. Oh, Sega Genesis. Uh, well, all right. Damn uh, it. Not for Dave. <laughs> I should have made it about Pac-Man or Pong or whatever. Well, no, I get generation. the Sega Genesis. It's just like, uh, it's for our, this is for our, our uh, 30-year-old listeners. Sonic the Hedgehog is a game that I love. It's above all the other crap out there. Echo the Dolphin and Mortal Kombat, Golden Axe, all my favorites are on there. Sega Genesis is good. Sega, take my money. Sega Genesis is good. Sega, take my money. Invite a friend to your house. You spend the whole day playing Madden together. Whoa. Oh. You beat him every game. He says this is lame and he is gone forever. Forever. So many systems in and out of my life from 8-bit all the way to 64. But I always go back to the one that is fun and play Earthworm Jim some more. Sega Genesis is good. Sega, take my money. Sega Genesis is good. Sega, take my money.
Hey now. Come on, Rico. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah, it was much better than the title itself. The references to the video games were great. So, yes, I uh, spoke too soon. Oh, good. Thank you. Well, folks, that was Say Goodbye to Hollywood. If you like our podcast, be sure to go to Apple and give us five stars. We release new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, so make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a single one. Follow us on social media at Billy Joel A to Z and give us some feedback. Do you like the Ronnie Spector cover version? Do you agree with Christopher Bonanos that the live version is better than the studio version? Do you hear, like Dave does, that Running on Ice tribute in the Nassau Coliseum 77? <laughs> What was your favorite Sega Genesis game? And should Billy Joel have rejected the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and just had a star on some sidewalk in Hicksville? Yeah, exactly. Two-Face. Ooh, Billy. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Alan Altman. I'm Dave Juskow. And this is Billy Joel A to Z. (laughs) 